as I was this morning just worshiping, and I, I, on a Sunday I get up earlier than I normally do because I, my sermon's been written, but I just want to spend some time in worship and just asking God to, to speak. And I, I was sitting there this morning, and I became a little bit convicted because I realized, you know, I, I don't preach a pump-me-up message. I don't preach that makes you excited and, and makes you want to run back out and, and charge through the week. And, and I realized that, and I, I have to just say, I, I don't know how to do that. This is my gift. This is what God's given me, and that's what I, I'm operating in. But the other thing that I was thinking through is, is I don't want to, and I'm not saying that anyone else does or any other preaching style does. I just know in my heart that I don't want you guys to go back to your week drag yourself through the week and then drag yourself through the doors and go, well, I made it. Please fill me back up so I can go back out and make it through my week. That's not how, as Christians, we're supposed to operate. The Bible says that we will push back the gates of darkness, which means, and myself included, and Jess and I have been talking about this all week, why is it that we get to Friday and we are exhausted? Like on Saturday, I don't think we moved until about 11.30. Like legit, we just, and just now we're laughing. And at times we need that rest. But I also think through too is how do I make it so that God, I'm not dragging myself back into church on a Sunday morning and then getting a little fill me up that just gets me to Thursday and then Friday, Saturday is an absolute mess while I drag myself back in. These testimonies are encouraging because it means that you guys are out there swinging a sword. You're out there taking ground. You're not dragging yourself in and and going, well, I just got through this week. I love these testimonies because it allows us to hear, man, I knocked out three demons this week and we, we, we moved forward somewhere. That's encouraging to me. And I, I was listening back through um, the last series when we last did this and um, Brad said something that was really interesting. He said, we're sending the church out into battle, out into war against fully loaded machine guns with sticks and stones. And I I was listening, I thought, Flip, that's right. That's what the church has been for so long that when we made it about us, just come and make yourself feel good, you got destroyed when you went back out there. Because you didn't have the tools in your toolbox, you didn't have the weapons on your back to actually fight against what was taking place out there. And I said last week, and I think the week before, I don't remember what week we're on for Ephesians, but at the start of Ephesians, I was talking about the fact that Paul was writing this letter to the church, but it was almost like he understood it's not just to Ephesus. This is not just to the church in Ephesians. This is to the church. This is the, this is the groundwork that we're going to lay in order for us to step out where it is God's calling us into. And this week... And next week, I want to wrestle some pretty big doctrinal issues that are in the church. I want to ask for your grace. And I want to ask that if I upset you, will you please come and talk to me? I'm going to preface this sermon with that. Because there's some things that I think we've had in our, in our thinking, in our psyche, that we, we've, without getting too much into it, we've created what they call a neuropathway. And a neuropathway is when I see something, I know how to think, right? So, so I don't want to go too far in it. That's what a neuropathway is. If I see something, it tells me how to think. 
right? And, and it's all full of the scriptures. For example, when we think the Garden of Eden, we think snake, and that's the only way we think. Or when we think the fall, we think, well, Satan must have fell before Adam and Eve, right? Because that's the way we think. But when you actually start to flip through the scriptures, some things have to be changed, and it, it wrestles our, our, our flesh because we've not looked at it this way before. And I think that what Paul does in this sermon challenges some of those old ways of thinking for this week and next week for these two. And I also understand that this is a very small bit of scripture that I'm probably going to speak on an hour for. I tried to get it down, but I just couldn't. There's like four words, and then you've got to stop and explain what he's expanding. But starting in Ephesians 2. Chapter 1, verse 3. There won't be any words up there because potatoes. Ephesians 2. Chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead. Paul, great start. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. The Greek word can also be disbelief there. So it's disobedience or disbelief in God. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So Paul here is, re, is, is explaining the very state of being that the church is in. He was stating to them exactly what happened in Genesis 2 when Eve took the fruit off the tree that God told her not to eat from. So in Genesis, in Genesis 2, chapter 16, it says, uh, sorry, Genesis chapter 2, verse 16, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So in the, in, in the beginning, in the garden, God, God created mankind in perfection. Right? We, we've read about that. We've heard stories as kids. The perfection in which mankind was created. Right? Spirit, soul, body in a world that was perfect by God, breathed in, into by God that everything that was in was given to mankind to rule and reign in that place in perfection with him. Right? As I explained last week, Adam ta- uh, Eve takes you to the tree. God comes down. He says, Eve, where are, Adam, where are you? You're missing from inside me. You're no longer connected with me spirit to spirit. You've been removed from me. And what happened there is that God says to them, if you eat from this tree, you will surely die. But they left that place. They left the garden alive and well. But they were alive and well in their flesh, not in their spirit. So the part that died, the part that you will surely die, was their spirit man. That when they left the garden, their spirit man became death. Does that make sense? So now we read on. Obviously, Adam and Eve continue to tour the land. We read about their sons. We read about, continue on through the Old Testament. So there was a bloodline that was continued, but that bloodline was continued through the seed of death. So every time that there was a child born, it was born from the seed of a dead spirit. That's what we learn from Genesis. So all the way down, seed after seed after seed, the nature of mankind became dead because of what took place in the garden from the very beginning. 
So what Paul is saying is, no, no, you were always dead. You, you came from a bloodline of death. I know this sounds very morbid, but I promise there's an exciting, there's an exciting end to the tale. But Paul is reiterating the position of life in which they once were a part of. That their, their, who they were, their makeup was founded in death. But what we see, obviously, and we all know the story, is that Mary comes and she carries a child that there was no human passing. That seed of death passed from, from father to, to son and daughter, father to son and daughter, father to son and daughter. That seed that was passed down was not passed into Mary. That's why the, that's why the Immaculate Conception, conception is so important. is because it didn't carry the seed of death. It was given from, from God into Mary bypassing mankind's broken bloodline to create again a new bloodline. That's why Jesus, when he comes, he comes without sin. Why? Because there was no sin passed into him. He came freely, wholly without sin. But Paul wants to remind them, just remember where you've come from. You were lost, broken, dead beings. And yet there was a plan put forward from the very beginning of the foundation of the world that would bring you, my sons and daughters, back into my perfect plan. But the interesting thing is when Paul explains it, he says, among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and the mind. Paul doesn't speak about the spirit. He says, you are carrying out the desires of your flesh, your earthly body, the thing that gets sick, the thing that gets old, and the desires of your mind, your soul, your mind, will, and emotions, they were the things that led you into your passions and your desires. But he then goes on to reiterate to say, to say that it was the prince of the air, the Satan, the evil one, who was leading those passions. So now we have a people who are dead and operating outside of God, being led by the principalities and the powers of which he talks about later, but this, this spirit that was leading them into death. But he doesn't, mention this, he doesn't mention our spirits. He doesn't say the desire of his spirit. Why? Because the spirit was dead. It was being led by another. And it's interesting that we have to walk this through. Because the scripture is very unusual as you read through it. And it, at times it seems like it contradicts itself. But there's a thing called a truth intention. Right, that the kingdom of God operates differently to how we see one thing from the other. So truth intention is, well, I can be a son of God, but I'm also the bride of Christ. Right? I can be a son of God, but I'm also a bond, a bond servant. Well, how can I be both? Right? Because God is using these examples for us to understand the inner depths and the multi-dimension of who he is, not just a plat flame plain, a plain flat surface like we want it to be, right? We want it to be A to B, then we'll settle at B for a bit, then we'll move to C. But that's not how God operates. He's a multidimensional being who operates outside of space and time and allows us to see glimpses of who he is throughout his scriptures. That's why the, the, the word of God is living and breathing because every time I've heard it explained like a diamond, 
that you can see a diamond face on and it looks like one colour, it looks like one size. But if you, if you shift slightly, it looks even more beautiful, it has a different colour. That the scriptures of God, the more that gets um, brought out, the more we see, the more dimensions of God we actually get to see. That's why for 2,000 years this book has been pulled apart and torn apart. I just finished reading that book you told me to read, Arne, um, More Than a Carpenter. And it's interesting how they, the, the academics have, have, and have been doing it for years have tried to pull apart the scriptures. But because it's a living, breathing word, they, they can never quite catch it because it goes deeper and deeper and deeper and unfolds more and more and more. But there's an understanding in, in the scriptures that we read in, in 1 Corinthians, and it says, 1 Corinthians 15 two, it says, And by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. But then Romans, 9, uh, Romans 5, 9 says, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from him, from the wrath of God. And then Romans 10.10 10 says, for with the heart one believes and is justified, and then with the mouth and confessed, he is saved. So in these three verses, in these three writers across these three things, we see we are saved, we shall be saved, and we're being saved. So which one is it? Am I saved, or am I going to be saved, or am I being saved? But each one of these stances, each one of these understandings fills a part of our makeup of who we are to fully bring us into Christ. So we're body, soul, spirit, right? Each one of those parts. Our spirit man, which was dead from the beginning, has now been saved. We are saved and hidden in Christ, right? The Bible says that. We all know that. Our spirit man has the mind of Christ, right? We are fully healed in our spirit. So it's our spirit that is saved. But then our soul, our mind, will, and emotion is being saved. As Paul says, being transformed by the renewal of my mind. Right? Then our body, this flesh suit that we carry around that gets sick, that gets old, that breaks down, will be saved because we will be given a new body when we come into the glory with the Father. So in all areas of our life, we see ourselves saved, being saved, and will be saved. But what happens is, is we get confused along the way and we, we lose what the Bible is saying to us because in our Western thinking, in the way we've been brought up, is it's all about getting to heaven. But that's not the way the ancient Jews saw it. They knew, no, I am in heaven. I'm a citizen of heaven. Why? Because I've been saved in him. But now I'm trying to work out my, my, my soul and my emotions to look like him. So someone will say, yeah, but we have the mind of Christ. Yes, we do have the mind of Christ, but we don't operate from that place all the time. I have the mind of Christ, but there's times where I treat my wife poorly. I can't stand there and say, I've got the mind of Christ. And she's going, uh, really? Not, not today you didn't. Right, because I'm trying to renew my mind to position my spirit Sorry, sorry, renew my mind to live from where my spirit is. So I'm trying to operate like Christ. And it's not a workspace thing. It's that's who I really am. I'm trying to look like I really am. So when it says you are an image bearer, which is one of the things we feel God 
positioned in our hearts for this house to be is you are an image bearer of Christ. But how many times do we not look like Christ? Because our soul, our mind, will, and emotions hasn't lined up with our spirit as to who we really are. Does that make sense? There's a thing called justification and sanctification. And it's interesting to me as we go along and, and, and as we unpack some of the things in the scriptures, I've been accused in, in the past of being a Pharisee because I wanted to know what the certain words meant. And I, I laughed at the time. And it was a, a guy was very hurt and I was trying to probably in my flesh more so than my spirit, I was trying to not prove him wrong, but just show him an, an error that he was in. And, and I was, I was, maybe I was outside of, of loving this guy, but in the end, he called me a Pharisee. That was okay. We worked through it. But since then, I've always worked through to say, God, what, what do these things mean? What, what, does, what do the words really mean? When I see something on a page, I go, but what does that mean? I love you. Yeah, but what does that mean? I, I want to help you. Yeah, but what does that mean? So when I see these words, and, and I heard this while I was at, at Bible college, the difference between sanctification um, and, mind blank, justification. I remember thinking, well, who cares? I love Jesus. Who cares? Just love him and we'll just move on. But as I started to unpack some of this stuff, as I started to go through, it started making so much more sense. It started to actually, actually clear up for me what it was that was taking place. So justification is the fact that I have been made completely righteous in Christ. But sanctification is meaning that I'm being transformed into the image of Christ. So we have all been justified. If you're, if you're born again, if you have declared that, that Jesus is your Lord and Savior, he's your king, and, and that you don't want to live in the life you've lived before, and we've all been saved, which I think most people here are in that place, then we have been justified by him. Made holy, made righteous. That's our spirit, man. But now there's a sanctif sanctification process which makes my flesh, my soul, my mind, will, and emotions operate out of that place of justification. So I'm being sanctified as I continue to walk. Why, does this make, why is this important? Because if you don't understand that, then Hebrews 10.14 that says this makes no sense. For by a single offering, he, Jesus has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So Jesus, who died on the cross, right, has perfected for all time who? Those who are walking in the process of sanctification. Those who are looking like him or attempting to look like him. So when, when, when Christ comes and he says, it's about the heart of the matter, right? We've all heard that hundreds of times. Well, it's about the heart. Yeah, because the heart is in a sanctification process. So what Jesus is looking for in that moment is, yes, yeah, she only gave a little bit, but her heart was trying to look like him. So what happens is it doesn't become works or, or faith. It becomes, what's the issue of my heart? It's that it's being sanctified to look like Him. So what this actually does for us is it says that Jesus died to save us, to put us in Him and to hide us in Him. And that process will remain forever while we're being sanctified into looking like Him. 
So what does it look like then for us to be a rebel? I think it looks like this. You've stopped the process of sanctification. You've stopped trying to live out of a place that, Lord, I want to look like you. God, I don't want to be this, this, this broken, lost guy anymore. I want to be who I really am hidden in you. That's who I am. That's when I, when I stuff up, when I do something that I know is not of him, it's not upsetting because God's cranky with me. It's because, man, I, that doesn't take me further down the sanctification process that I want to be on. It doesn't look like him. It means it looks like something else. And I don't want to look like something else. So it's not that I go back to my knees and say, Lord, I did this morning during worship. God, I repent for the way that I thought about that guy. Why? Because he's cranky with me. No, because that's not who I am. That's not who I am. I'm not that guy. I'm hidden in him, trying to look differently, trying to, trying to see the way he sees it. So this whole process, this whole Christian walk is not about do the right thing and be a good boy or a good girl. It's that you're on a process of sanctification to look like him, who? Yahweh, the creator. We get to look like him. But there's a process. And even Paul said, I'm, I'm being transformed. The super apostle, if we use that term, the guy who wrote most of the New Testament, even he realized this is a process that I'm on. It's a process of walking it out. Louie and I were speaking about this this morning. It's not come in and get changed now. Everything's awesome. While it is that in our spirit, we have to learn how to transfer it from our spirit man into our soul, our mind, will, and emotions as we be sanctified in him and as we live out who he says we are. Does that make sense? I'm seeing about 75% head nods. I'll take it. Just a little sidebar for free. My job, my job is not to get you to think a specific way. That's not my job. My job is to get you to think. To get you to think. Just to start. And I'm not saying you don't think. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is I want to lead you to a position where you go, Ben said these two funny words, justification and sanctification. He then went on to explain what they were. Made no sense to me, but I'm going to go, look, I've achieved my job. That's it. That's all I have to do. If I can start you on a journey to say, what in the world was that crazy guy talking about with his party shirt on? I'm going to go back to where he went. That's all. Because then hopefully you come back next week and you say, dude, I, I went and I found that word, justification. I know what it means. Fantastic. Now look at the next one. See, it's a journey. It's a process. I've said this before. Jesus says, I'm a lantern unto your feet. It's step by step by step. By step, we learn who he is. God showed me something that I'm going to show you now that I hope that I don't come across so I know it all because you, you have to understand that sometimes when I'm prepping these sermons, I'm blown away. I'm sitting at my desk weeping. I'm ringing, dude, dude, did you know this? I just saw something in the scriptures. Did you know this? And sometimes I go, yeah, whoa. And then sometimes I go, yeah, yeah I've known that for a while. I'm like, oh, I, I just saw something I've never seen before. I know more of who I am now. It's like the Bible becomes this book that reveals me 
It reveals him, but he's saying who I am. And I get excited because the more I learn about him, the more I learn about how to operate in who I am. Paul continues on, Ephesians 2, chapter 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he, loves, he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved and raised up, Sorry, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. But God, being rich in mercy because of what? His great love. There is a, a, a theological doctrine, if you will, that states that God poured out his wrath on Jesus. That when God was hanging on the cross, it was his anger for sin and anger for what mankind had did that was holding him on the cross. That God poured out his wrath. There's a few different names for it. One's called penal substitution. Another is something else. And as I started to, to dig into this teaching and understand what it was that some of these theologians were trying to say, I just could never ever settle my heart that God was angry that he poured out his, his, his frustration and his anger on Jesus. And that's why he died on the cross. So as you start flipping through the Bible, you start looking. It says, for love, because of love. It was love, love. And I started going, well, how do we get to a place of wrath and anger when Paul right here clearly says it was the great love he had for us that he, he put his son on that cross. So it changes this picture of God from being this benevolent, angry God who needs his wrath to be, to be put together to this father who loved a people and said it's the most extreme position that I can go to. But in order to love them the way they can be loved, I need to do this. He positioned himself in love. But still I heard again and again. And I asked God, why? why? How do, where do we get this? Where do we get this thing? Because the Bible in John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his own only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It doesn't say, for God so hated the world that he killed his son. It was a position of love and caretaking, not an act of a slap on the wrist because they've done the wrong thing. But there's a fancy English word that leads us to the place that we get to, to say that the wrath of God was poured out. And the word is propitiation. And I didn't go and find this in some old school theological book. This is in your Bibles. And for most of us, we would have fumbled to say it and then skimmed over it and said, I'm not really sure what it means. Because that's what I did for the most part. But the word is all throughout the New Testament. 1 John 4.10 says, In this is love, not that we have loved uh, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. 1 John 2.2 2 says, He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Romans 3.24.25 says, And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his, 
his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because of his divine forbearance he has passed over former sins. So we see it again and again and again in the New Testament. And for most teachers that teach the wrath of God, they use these verses because the word propitiation actually means, it, it, it means, um, from the Oxford Dictionary, it means the action of appeasing a God, spirit, or person. It means to appease. I know some of you are looking and going, good gracious, I hope he goes somewhere with this. We're going somewhere, I promise. But it means to appease. And what appeasing means is that for all of you who have jobs and your boss is angry at you because you forgot to print off that document that he needed to sign and he's cranky, you appease your angry boss by running to your computer, printing the document and hand delivering it. You've appeased him, right? Oh, I'm not angry anymore because you've done what you needed to do. So to appease somebody is to do the thing at hand so that they are no longer angry. So to appease God would be that God is, ah, I'm angry at the sin. I'm angry about what's happened. And what I need is I need an appeasing so that I don't feel angry anymore. So I'm going to take it out on, on the children of God. And as he goes to take it out, Jesus steps in the way and takes his wrath and his anger. That's great, except for we don't see that in the New Testament. We see love, 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 love. So what does the word mean? The Greek word is the word hilasterion. And it means four different explanations. One is propitiation or to appease. The other is expiation. The other is atoning. And the last one is the lid of the ark. So it means four things. To appease, to expiate or to atone, and the lid of the ark. So three examples of that word talk about love and atonement. And atonement means to fulfill a payment that needed to be paid. See, what happened with God and Abraham was that there was a covenant cut. And that covenant was a Jewish blood covenant. And a Jewish blood covenant can only be paid for by what? Death or blood. So it wasn't that God was angry, but that there was a covenant cut that needed reparation. It needed payment. So God, knowing what was going on, when Jesus says in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, if you can take this cup from me, God, I, I, I see it in my head like God has said, Son, I can't. It has to be paid. Son, I can't. It has to be paid. I don't see an angry God saying, no, you deserve this. I see a father brokenhearted saying, son, I can't. We've got to pay the reparation. We've got to pay what was put forward by men. I've got a plan, but it's got to be paid in full. You see, the difference draws an image of an angry God. That when I listen to atheists and I read a lot of atheists, they say, how in the world can I serve an angry God who, who was so angry that the only way it could be fulfilled was by killing somebody? And I go, I don't know. I don't know how to answer that. Until I came across this and I realized I do know how to answer it. That wasn't what the Father's heart was. He was paying back a debt so that we could come back into Him. See, this is why now more and more and more I get upset and frustrated with people treating a relationship with Jesus like a willy-nilly walk in the park and one day I'll get to heaven and it'll all be good because we don't understand the pain and the suffering that Jesus died for on that cross to bring us back into that position. Father, take it from me. I can't, my son. For their sake, I can't. 
It was to pay back a price. But the last point in the word propitiation, the last meaning that I think is more important than ever is the ark, the lid of the ark. What ark? It doesn't matter which one you choose. You can choose the one that brought the Israelite family out of the brokenness or you can choose the ark of the covenant that Jesus says, that it says in the scriptures, I am coming as a propitiation, as the lid of the ark. What was in the ark? The presence of God. So Jesus is saying, I am coming as the entranceway back into the presence with the Father. I am coming for you to come back into the presence with the Father. That's what the word means. So when Jesus says, I'm a door, the only way to get to the Father is through me. Then it re- reiterates it in a, fancy, in a fancy word that we've taken and said, no, it was an angry God. No, it was a God that had a plan from the very beginning to bring you and I back into relationship with the Father. He knew it all along. I will be the lid to the presence of God. You'll come through me to get to him. So there's no wrath to come. No, it is very clear in the scriptures that there is a wrath to come. Romans 2.5, but because of your hard and impertinent heart, you were standing, sorry, you were storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. There is an outpouring of wrath. There is a time where God will come and pour out on those who refuse to see who he was. There is a time where evil will be put to bed, essentially, will be put in its place. There is an outpouring of wrath. We can't negate that, but it didn't happen on Jesus. It didn't happen on your eye. That's what grace is. That's what grace is. It says there that by your grace, by grace we have been saved. By grace we have been saved. The grace of of God is that you and I, even though we deserved it, got to come through the lid into God. That's grace. And anything away from that, anything away from the image of God is operating and saying, well, I've got my grace. No, the grace allows you to be who you were always meant to be. See, it's not about being a good boy. I've said it again and again. But the grace allows me to live out of that place in heaven. That's what grace does to me. I kid you not. I was looking and saying, God, how, what, what's happened to our grace? And I put my Bible on the table. And I know that a lot of people say this. And I, sometimes I cringe, but it really happened. And now I'm a bit more less on the cringy side. But my Bible fell open to Jude. And I had highlighted this part of Jude, Jude 1, 4, and it says this, For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were destined for this condemnation, ungodly people who perverted the grace of God into sensuality and deny our, our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. But there was a time where people came in and they diverted the reality of grace. They perverted the reality of grace and made it for sensuality. So what does sensuality mean? It means the enjoyment, expression, or pursuit of physical pleasure, especially sexual pleasure. So we made grace about who? 
little old me. We made grace about the fact, well, God died for me and he loves me. And while that's true, that's not the reality of grace. The grace of God is not a thing or, or, or an act. It's a person. It's Jesus. The grace of God is that you didn't deserve it, and yet he gave it to you. The grace of God is that you could have been anything, and I'm going to allow you to choose to be in me and to carry the image of the Almighty Father. That's the grace of God. Now, sure, we can look at that and go, the grace that, 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 that gets me is that when I stuff up, he lets me come back. Absolutely, that's what I said at the start. It's about our heart. But the grace of God is that he allowed me into a place that was never mine to go into. That even once it was all said and done, even once it was all said and done and we were out of the Father and we were lost and we were dead. Remember, Paul is writing to the church and he's saying, don't forget where you came from, from death, from brokenness. But my grace in you allows you to be who I've always designed you to be. You see, the grace of God allows us to live out our scroll that he is destined for us. That's the grace of God. The grace of God is not, well, I get to do what I want and walk around and be whoever and he's going to love me all the way through it. No, the grace of God is that you didn't get to live out your scroll because you were lost. The grace of God allows you to be who he designed you to be. That's grace. That's the beautiful grace that, that God leads us into. We have cheapened this thing. We have cheapened this thing. And I tell you, when I, when I don't live up, I don't mean live up to who I have to be. I mean, when I don't live up by keeping my gaze on him, I get myself to a position where I go, God, I don't want to be that other guy. That's not me. That's not me. And your grace allows me to be who you designed me to be. That's who I want to be. That's who I want to be. I want to realign myself and keep my eyes on the things that are above because, because that's who I am. That's who you made me to be. Romans 5 says this. Chapter 5, verse 6. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Why? Because he loved us. Because he loved us. See, we were freely given something that we never ever deserved. We were freely allowed into a position that we had been removed from because of our own silly decisions. But God, with love in his heart, decides, no, my, these are my people. These are my sons, my daughters, and I'm not finished with them yet. I will not allow them to stay in the fallen place they walked into. I'm not finished with them yet. So I'm going to give them the most incredible thing they've ever seen. And that's going to be grace. And I'm going to bring them back in to my story. 
Why? Because that's who I created them to be. Our salvation in our spirit, man, is not a ticket to heaven. Although it is, it's not just a ticket to heaven. Our salvation in our spirit, man, is operating in the grace of God, which allows us to now walk out the plan that He created for us in the beginning. It's the start of your journey. It's not the end. We got to sit with Sven and Shalice during the week and just talk about baptism and to watch her face light up when I'm saying, you know, this is the beginning of your journey. You have a life to live that God has designed for you. That when you go into that water, because she said, you know, I, 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 want, I want the old me to die. Jess and I were like, well, we don't really need to say anymore. You've sorted it out pretty good. But to watch a young, a young girl decide, I want this. I want that grace that he's already written my plan that's better than I've already had. That's better than I could ever write. I want it. What do I have to do? You see, that's the importance of the conversation in John between Nicodemus and Jesus is because Nicodemus says, what do I have to do to get this? What do I have to do? If you haven't seen The Chosen, the scene that they portray in that is spectacular. Man, that made me cry, that scene. Not saying much again, but jeepers, I was like, this is phenomenal. The way they captured, because Nicodemus, he's saying, but I don't understand. It doesn't make any sense. And he says, trust me. Trust me, when you die to yourself and you come and live in me, I will give you all that you'll ever need. I will design for you a life. Paul finishes this section by saying this in verse 7. So that in the coming ages, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. See, I love that God didn't make us earn anything. God didn't make us earn anything because at that point, it would have been us that earned it, not He that gave it. So even in giving us everything, he says, all the praise comes back to me. All the worship comes back to me. Because even in that place, he realized these guys are going to get lost. They're going to make it about themselves. You see, every other religion in the world asks something of the people to do what? To appease God. I remember I was sitting in India. Brad and I were sitting at this little... Or was it Sri Lanka? I don't remember which one it was. And I don't remember who else was there. I just know Brad and I were there. But we were sitting there and we were at our hotel and across from, from our hotel. It's Maddie here. I think it was India. Hey, it was that weird hotel where you tried to order fries. Hilarious. Um, we were sitting at this hotel and they didn't have fries. They had curry. That was it. But their menu was like this big. Um, we're sitting at this hotel and there was this eloquent shrine. Like massive eloquent shrine and we were just chatting and, and chatting about it we watched this little girl tiny little girl carry this massive plate of fruit 
to sit it at this shrine. I was heartbroken. This girl who probably hasn't eaten in days had this beautiful array of fruit and sat it amongst other plates of rotting fruit to appease her God who was angry for something that she or her family had done throughout the week. And I remember sitting there just talking, we were talking about it, and I said, what kind of God is that? One that forces upon a people to love. That's not our God. Our God positions himself in a place where he says, no, I love you. I will fulfill the promise made. I will fulfill what's been laid forward. I will give you everything. All I ask of you, get this, all I ask of you is to come and live out of the safety of me. Now look, we have to die to ourselves. We have to lay ourselves down. Jesus makes that abundantly clear. But we're not laying ourselves down with nothing. He's saying, come and lay yourselves down and live from me. Come and live from the best place to live from. So while we lay ourselves down, we're getting the best deal on the planet. Come and live with the guy who's put it all together. Yeah, you've got to give me everything. But that stuff you're going to give me is nonsense anyway. I've got better for you in here. See, when he says to the rich young ruler, go and give everything away, he's saying, that stuff you've got is nonsense. I've got so much more for you in here. But the deal in his head wasn't worth it. The deal in his head was, I've got to give away everything. He gives me, I've got to, then I've got to follow him. Yeah, but he knows where he's going. Does that make sense? When we can understand the grace of God, that our God is not an angry God, but rather one that holds the plan and the stars in his hand. I heard this during the week. I don't remember who said it, so it's not mine. It's somebody else's. But they said, talking about the prophetic and some of the questions and the prophetic at the moment, but he said, he said, we don't know what the future holds, but we know who holds the future. And I thought, that'll do me. That'll do. I'll take that with my Bible and I'll just go onto that one. And I don't know who's saying what and I don't know where things are going, but I know this, that wherever I step, so long as I step where Jesus has told me to step, I'll be in good stead. Why don't you stand? I understand that some of these sermons that are, and next week may be a little bit even more difficult for me to articulate some things. So maybe go and read that and just, I'm just going to preach the next part of two, which is one new man. And I might even stay there for a couple of weeks. I'm not sure yet. But some of these sermons are meaty. Some of these sermons are, are challenging. But what I'm trying to do is prepare us Prepare us to operate in Him. Like I said, I don't want to just fill us up so we can make it through to Thursday then drag ourselves back in and hope for another fill up. I want to prepare us, myself included, so that when we go out, when we go into our spheres, when we go to the lady who comes to our home to do a course or we go to people who are coming at work, then we're prepared in ourselves to, 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 to explain who He is. Probably going to embarrass her, but Sylvia last Sunday said to me, Ben, I'm just going to take a, 
a tea bag home because I want to just go home and sip on my tea and just process some of this. Oh, that's gross. No. Sorry. And Sylvia, I want to honor you for that. Because like I said at the start, don't shake your head. I see you. I can see you there. I want to honor you for that because what you said to me in that process was, Ben, I don't know what to do with some of this. Fantastic. You need to go and ask God. That's exactly the point that church should be leading us to. When we gather together, we should be encouraged and stirred by Arne. We should be challenged and encouraged by Louis in the story that they've brought. We should be encouraged to go and say, God, what are you doing in me? What does this look like? What are those things Ben said? Go back to the scriptures. Don't just wait till next week. Go and ask God, what did he say? What did that mean? Can you show me why, the way he saw that? That's what we should be doing, encouraged. So, Father, we come this morning just to ask you to take us deeper. Lord, to ask you to reveal your heart and your plans to us. Jesus, I break that spirit of tiredness right now in your name. Father, I break that in myself and Jess, in our family, in our home. Lord, I break that excuse to be tired and not want to press into you more. God, I, I ask, Lord, that you challenge me this week to find ways to go deeper into you, to find ways to know you more, to see you more, to find ways in my sphere of influence in my life to reveal the things about you that you're showing me, to those around me that I may reveal, Lord, who you are in a bigger and a deeper way. But, Lord, help us to see you more, to know you more. Help us to understand the depth of the cross the power of your resurrection, the glory of your ascension, Lord, help us to see it in more detail, to see it in more ways that, that change our life. Lord, we love you, we honor you, we glorify you, and in your beautiful name we pray. Amen.